Hi everybody, welcome to the latest Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard. Now hopefully some of you will have listened to a podcast we did a couple of years ago now, which was on Brexit with Esther Guy Meakin, who was working for Beef and Lamb New Zealand at the time. Um, I think it was 2016, there'd been the referendum in um, Britain around where they decided to leave Brexit. It took a long time. We recorded that podcast in 2019 and... I listened back to it yesterday and what's clear at the time is how much we didn't know what was going to happen. Britain didn't exactly know how it was going to do it. It was in the middle of a um, an election uh, season or election uh, process. Its date for leaving had been moved a couple of times. So we decided to come back, revisit it now because I think a wee bit more has become clear um, and was particularly a bit more what it means for each of the all the countries involved, the UK, the EU and particularly I guess our interest is in the, the implications for New Zealand. So I'm joined today by three Beef and Lamb New Zealand staff who I'll get to introduce themselves in turn. First is Francis Deignan. Um, I hope I've got that surname correct, who's our Senior Manager for International Trade. Francis, welcome along. So what are you doing in your role? Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually a bit of a newbie here. I've only been here for three months um, and I came from Washington DC where I was working for the Ministry um, for Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, and their trade team over there. Um, and actually, full disclosure, Aaron, I was before that I was working for the British government uh, doing Brexit negotiations uh, at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So um, I've had quite a hands-on experience with some of the things we're going to discuss. Excellent. I will get some of the inside running. Um, well, actually, and our next person is over in in the I think in the UK at the moment, Alex Cowan, who's our regional manager for for Europe and and UK. Whereabouts are you based, and what do you do day to day, Alex? Yeah, so it's quite an interesting one. Um, I'm based uh, both in London, so I, I sit side by side um, uh, people at the High Commission, so that, that's where I'm based there. Uh, I'm also responsible for um, the office in Brussels and, and the relationships there. So I suppose day to day my, my bread and butter is relationships and, and kind of monitoring what's happening on the ground and keeping a close eye. Uh, on things, on, both on the trade side, but you know, increasingly, um, the portfolio of interest is quite diverse in that it covers environmental, climate change, uh, and, and shared interests as much as our sort of trade gender as well. Great, thank you. And our, our third um, speaker expert today is Nicholas Jolly, whose new title just taken up, Senior Advisor of Trade and Environment. Um, welcome along, Nicholas. What do you do for Beef and Lamb New Zealand? You are based in Wellington, though. Morning, Aaron. Yes, I am based in Wellington, although originally from down south, just outside of Wanaka. Um, uh, so I obviously work on the trade side of things along with Francis, but moving more into the environmental side of things and working on cooperation with some of our international partners. So that's the ones over in the UK, but then the ones through our International Beef Alliance and Global Sheep Producers Forum. Um, and that has uh, much more of an environmental focus um, as well as the trade side of things. Awesome. All right, so we're going to sort of go around each of you in turn, and some of you will probably no doubt better add or expand on the answers of the others, but let's start at the beginning or close to the beginning. Um, we did the podcast a couple of years ago. Why are we revisiting it, Francis? What's, um, have they got it all sorted by now, or what's, what's happening? What's the, why do we need an update? It's all done. It's, it's all sorted. Um, so this will be a really, really quick podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, it, you know, this, it marks kind of two years since the UK has left the EU. 
Um, and so I think it's a good time to kind of see kind of the progress that was made, have a bit of a reflection on kind of what happened and what didn't happen and kind of the impacts going forward. Um, it might be worth giving a bit of a recap for kind of, you know, what's happened yep. in the last two years before we kind of kick on. Um, first and foremost, uh, I just wanted to kind of outline or, or kind of reaffirm how big Brexit was for the UK. So there's a, you know, people compare it to when East Germany uh, joined up with West Germany again. It's a really big deal and there's a lot of things to kind of tick off as part of that process. Um, the problem is it wasn't, uh, there wasn't necessarily a big wide ranging plan of attack when people were uh, voting on the issue. So I kind of um, compare it to the likes of the flag referendum that we had in New Zealand. So if we kind of take that as a comparison, it's the government going out to the New Zealand people and saying, do you want to keep the flag or do you want to change the flag? But having no alternatives as to what a flag would look like. And everyone campaigning as part of that process saying, I don't want that flag and I don't want that flag. And then people voting on that basis. So you kind of, the vote happened and then politicians and government officials uh, both in the EU and in the UK were scrambling to figure out what does that actually mean? What does that look like? And there's about, there's a few things that they needed to do both internationally and domestically. The first one is they actually needed to leave the EU. So that happened in uh, January 2020. It was the divorce, as it were, the withdrawal. They then had to figure out what the new relationship with the EU was going to be. So that was uh, that came into effect the 1st of May, um, but had to be agreed by the 31st of December uh, 2021. Uh, that was a very, as with everything with Brexit, that was a very uh, uh, eventful negotiation where they stayed up on Christmas Eve, furiously trying to negotiate what their new trade relationship with the EU was going to be. They also had to say, okay, so the EU has a lot of free trade agreements um, across the world. They have 38 uh, free trade agreements covering 97 countries. In the UK, from 2016 through to 2020, had to carry over those FTAs so they could continue to have preferential trade with their trading partners. So that's a really, really big job. They then had to say, okay, what's the UK's independent trade strategy going to be? It's going to be a bit different from, from what the EU is doing. So they were looking for new comprehensive free trade agreements. And they said, look, we're going to try and target the US because the EU's never managed to get a free trade agreement with them. And we're also going to look out to our um, what they would call Antipodean, um, but some of their Commonwealth partners, particularly Australia and New Zealand. Um, there was a lot of similarities in how we operate. So those were the kind of international things on their to-do list. But then there were even more radical things domestically as they had to figure out what do they keep in terms of the regulatory and legal side of things? What do they keep from the EU? What do they take over? What do they depart from? And, you know, of relevance to us, what do they do in terms of subsidies? The EU provided um, significant and continues to provide significant farming subsidies under the Common Agricultural Policy. And that was now on the backs of the UK to figure out what they were going to provide their farmers and how they were going to do it. So there was a lot to do in a very, very short amount of time. Um, and I guess, you know, as of the 1st of May, they signed um, the, the effect of the um, 
sorry, the trade agreement, uh, which is known as the UK-EU Trade Cooperation Agreement, uh, came into effect, uh, and now it's all done and dusted. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's nothing else for us to really do on that front because it's a FTA signed and and uh, Brexit's done. Um, Alex is looking at me with and rolling his eyes. Um, but that's it's never done. what's taken place over the last couple of years. Okay, thank you. I, a very comprehensive I note, update. I would note just one thing: um, when we talk about chaos, we we there were you know there were multiple extensions. There was a lot of things we didn't know that were going to happen. Um, but I was reading something just the other day, and over the period where they were trying to withdraw, they had um, forty three government ministers resigned over what approach they were taking when it came to Brexit. So yeah. chaos is probably putting uh, putting it lightly. I, I Listening back to the podcast with Esther, that's the thing, because I mean, it's not a subject I know well, and we'd ask a question and Esther was very, um, it was, well, it depends. We're not sure. And this, this is what we didn't know at that time. So we're going to talk a bit more. It's good to know there's agreement. We'll talk a bit more about that, what that means. But I, the, the term we coined last time in a way, you talked about it being like the, the Berlin Wall coming down East Germany, joining West Germany. It was um, a bit like Brentree, which was her phrase for when uh, the UK joined the EC back in the, the 60s and 70s. What the, the effect for agriculture in the UK was similar to what happened to agriculture in New Zealand at the time. It was suddenly the rug pulled out from under her feet and I guess that's what's happened to the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, for better or worse, you've got to feel for the poor uh, UK farmers because they've been hit with one thing after another. Um, and, you know, we forget how reliant uh, the UK is on the EU. It's their biggest mm. trading partner. So, you know, you know, when I was over there, I had the, had the opportunity to kind of sit down with, um, with uh, some of the sheep farmers over there. And, and they were, you know, some of these guys were sending 90% of their sheep over to the EU. And so if that trade was stopped, you know, they'd have to take views off. Um, so it was, yeah. it was a really scary time. And, you know, especially if they, you know, you can't trade and we're cutting off all your subsidies. And also we're putting in a whole bunch of new regulations in place. Not great for business owners. And it's definitely difficult yeah. for farmers. No, so it's a, I mean, it's a long time ago, but I'm certain some of our listeners will remember, and it's certainly in sort of the, the cultural memory, if you like, of New Zealand farming, what, what happened when the, the UK joined the, the EEC back through the 60s and I think finally in early 70s. But um, Sir Francis told us the, the agreement signed. Um, that doesn't mean it's done and dusted, though, Alex. There's um, ongoing issues and things that have been sorted out. Yeah, so um, is it done and dusted? Um, so I, I had that question written down and I, I prepared some notes and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, what I would say is, you know, you, you talked about the, the subsidy change in, in New Zealand. I think contextually it, it is a bit different. Um, you've got the TC, the, the Trade and Corporation Agreement that um, Francis talks about. So you've got that continuity with their, their largest and closest trading partner. So there's there's not that... I suppose market level of disruption. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some some frictions, but um, and on the subsidy side of things, um, you know, you've got a different policy that's happening and developing in each of the devolved authorities. Um, so in terms of that uh, agricultural development, um, the, 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 the 
the, the subsidy itself, if you take England, for example, is, is transitioning away from a direct payment over a period of seven years. So we, we will be looking at a period of transition. You've got new uh, environmental land management schemes coming in as well. So it, I, I suppose what I'm saying is it, it's kind of a, a broader picture. Um, so, but is Brexit all done and dusted? Um, no. And look, I, I've got some, I suppose, points that, I, that I'll just share on that. Um, as it's been said, you know, we're, we're a year away from, the, you know, the signing of the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Um, we went through a transition period. Um, we've talked a little bit about that. And from an economic view, Brexit was, um, I suppose, you know, it's, it's a slow, slow moving beast. And there's some indicators, you know, it's, it's far from done. Um, what, what I'd probably add is, you know, total UK and EU trade lost out on the global rebound in, in 2021. Um, and it, it, it kind of stayed at the low levels of the 2020 pandemic. And I suppose what we'll see is, you know, continued squabbling of annulment of the terms of a 45 year legal and political marriage. Um, and so if you can imagine, you're not going to wrap that up all too quickly. So there's ongoing friction in terms of um, equivalency and, and policy change um, that we'll start to see um, causing sort of uh, friction points in the next couple of years. Um, people, I suppose, ask me how long is a Brexit uh, piece of string? Um, I'd say, you know, to be honest, it's infinite, really. Um, and look, I'll, 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 I'll sort of talk about a few sort of pinch points. The main, the main ones, I suppose, that, that are worth highlighting is what's happening on the island of Ireland with Northern Ireland, um, fisheries, and then, you know, UK and EU import controls. Um, these are probably the big ticket items at the moment, um, but then that's not to say that there's, you know, broader uh, and, you know, lots of different issues in lots of different areas and every, every point that you've got a social, cultural, political uh, or trade touch point, you know, there, there's, there's, an, there's a, a negotiation now because essentially the UK is a third country. So that, so one of the um, analogies I'd heard, and I actually came from one of our, st our team, it might have been you, Nick, I think, was that prior to Brexit, moving between countries in the EU was a bit like for sheep farmers or, or New Zealand farmers moving between the North and South Island. Um, is that fair? And what's happening now? Um, yeah, I, I'd go with that analogy. Um, so by way of just a bit of a context, um, Liz Truss was given the job of uh, leading the post-Brexit uh, negotiations with the European Union following, I suppose, the, the surprise re resignation of uh, Lord David Frost, who you may um, have seen in the news. Um, Truss, in, in a recent cabinet reshuffle, um, was, was given the post of the UK's Foreign Affairs Minister. Uh, and she's recently reiterated threats, I suppose, made by the uh, pre predecessor to uh, trigger something called Article 16. Now, I'll come on to what Article 16 is, but this is, uh, I suppose, laying a bit of background in terms of that, uh, which which what it does is is unilaterally suspend parts of what, what is called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which I'll uh, expand on as well. Um, if my colleagues at any, any point want to jump in and um, add any points at any stage, uh, you know, feel free. But... What is the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, I hear you say um, the UK and the EU agreed to keep Northern Ireland in the bloc's single market for goods uh, in order to avoid the need for a physical border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which is an EU member state. Um, 
in the south um, of, of the island. So you've, you've got a physical land border between the UK uh, and the EU. Um, so both London and Brussels um, don't want to endanger the peace in Ireland. So, you know, those with a, with a you know, slightly longer memory will, will all remember the troubles. And that obviously wants to be uh, avoided. Um, so Brexit has created a de facto border in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So the agreement basically says there is now a border in the Irish Sea and Northern Ireland needs to um, uh, stay within the rules of the, the European Union, uh, as it were, for, for various parts of uh, you know, policy and, and law. Um, so regardless of signing up to the agreement in 2019, and here's, here's, here's the up-to-date latest position on that, um, the UK government now says that the protocol was a compromise and the UK has suggested the EU is applying too strictly. So now that they're essentially asking for a little changing of the deck chairs, should we say, um, and they basically asked for removing the checks and paperwork that we see at the border, um, making sure goods in Northern Ireland are required to meet British standards without the need to conform to EU law and removing the jurisdiction of the European Commission and the European Court of Justice over protocol application. Now, from, from a Brussels perspective, they're thinking, hang on a minute. Um, and as a reminder, Article 16 is a mechanism in the protocol document that allows both parties to uh, suspend anything that causes economic societal or environmental uh, difficulties. So the EU has basically come back with a counter offer and said, look, we can reduce checks by 80% uh, half and, and half the, the, the number of bits of paperwork that you need to do at the border and cut down on customs data uh, and allow medicines to freely to move in, in, in and out of the, the, uh, the province. Um, and then looking at potentially relaxing some more, like, rules around uh, chilled meat products, such as sausages, uh, which is the one we see often in the media. Um, you know, and, and there, there is a problem for New Zealand in that, in that, you know, we have a TRQ quota with the EU and the UK. Now, which one do we use to send products to Northern Ireland? Well, the, the answer to there is we can't because it's deemed at risk because then that product could be, you know, going into the UK or EU and, and not being properly accounted for uh, under that tariff rate quota. So there, there is there is a problem there, and you know it's largely seen in as an erosion of WTO oh. uh, rights. So that that that's 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 a, a kind of stuck in the motions at the moment. There's no agreement on in terms of what that's going to look like going forward. Is Article 16 going to be triggered, and what does that mean for the Northern Ireland Protocol? So that is a fantastic example of Brexit not being quite done yet. And it, it's, it's going to progress. It's going to continue. Um, so just, to, just to recap, I understood that effectively the solution to the problem or the, the, the tricky situation in Northern Ireland was to treat it as you said, like a de facto member of the EU still, even though it's part of the, the UK. To, the border in the so RSC. It, yeah. 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 But then the UK have come back and almost said, we want that, but we don't want to have to abide by the, the regulations, et cetera, that we being a member of the EU would require, or, or we want to still be, yeah, they wanted to have their um, cake and eat it too, almost. Essentially, um, we, we were starting to stray into politics, I suppose. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you, you're talking about things like sovereignty, and it is quite difficult to 
yeah. you know, cast an opinion on that. Um, but essentially, can I, yes. Um, but yeah. Can I just jump in for yeah. a second? I think there's, there's kind of the wider context is basically we're having a conversation about trade flows, right? So a lot of these conversations are actually really simple. How do we get, and as Alex rightly said, sausages over the border? That's, a, that's essentially mm-hmm. it. How do we make that as easy as process? But unfortunately, because of the political situation in the island of Ireland, is that it's turned into a whole deeply rooted question around ideology, around religion, around poverty, around different factions, about you know cultural identity. And so it makes a relatively simple process, and our job is pretty simple, it's to get some A to B um, over the line into a really, really complicated thing. And so what we saw earlier uh, in uh, 2021, around May, um, is we saw some rioting on the streets in Belfast. We saw some really intense violence because people were so passionate about this sort of thing. So uh-huh. it sounds like it's bureaucrats being bureaucrats and negotiating about minutia that doesn't matter. But when we think about what actually is happening on the streets and what the people of Northern Ireland care about, it speaks to who they are. So it mm. does dive into politics very, very quickly. And as much, I mean, I don't know about Nick and Alex, but I got into trade because it's one of the, it's one of the most straightforward things in the world. We complicate it, but it's someone wants to sell something and we want to provide it to you. <laughs> and so when you kind of get a whole bunch of trade officials in a room to then talk about uh, culture and politics and, so, and social settings, it does make things quite complicated mm. quite quickly. All right, let's come back to you, um, Alex. And, and the next one on your list, and it's an interesting one because we've been talking about getting sausages over the borders, but another one where those borders may be a wee bit more amorphous is um, the issue of fisheries. Where you don't necessarily have a straight line on a map, and um, this yeah. made a little bit in the news in New Zealand. What's been happening there? Um, yeah, so look, fisheries was was what talked about quite a lot because you say that there's no real defining lines in terms of obviously you've got territorial waters anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, but I, what is fair to say is it's arguably the the first sector that we really started to see things um, or implications. Um, sort of happening because what happened was essentially you go from an effortless export essentially within that common market um, or single market sorry um, to with a perishable product that needs to be at market just in time because you know it's, it's going to spoil um, to a situation where the, the processors and fishermen have to start, going to have to start filling out paperwork at, at junctures in the supply chain that they just didn't have to do that before. And I, I can talk a little bit a bit more about that. But um, under the Brexit trade deal concluded just before Christmas 2020, EU fishing boats um, could continue to fish in British waters uh, if they obtained a licence. OK, well, that sounds quite straightforward. Um, but they needed to prove grandfather rights. And if you're a small fisherman, uh, and you didn't have the necessary technology to prove that where you've been fishing or landing and catching fish, then, um, well, it was very difficult to do. And then so uh, essentially a lot of EU fishermen have failed to secure the necessary paperwork um, from the UK or the Channel Islands for the matter, because we know we forget about the Channel Islands, but that they do come into this as well. 
Um, and look, so France at the moment is arguing that the boats are well known to the British authorities and their records are common knowledge, although some French commentators question the strict rights uh, under the letter of the law. So well, we've got a situation, um, I suppose, the, the other way around, uh, the paperwork for the UK seafood exporters into the UK, especially for live export, uh, is pretty staggering. So you've got a situation where you've got increased paperwork at both sides. Um, you've got arguments around um, who owns what in the sea, where you can land it. And essentially, um, you know, this is going to be an, an ongoing issue that's that's not going to be resolved very quickly. So uh, suddenly you've got UK, uh, uh, quite a good example was on the radio the other day, uh, a Scottish Winkle exporter and processor had to start putting uh, European health forms together for his live exports of Winkles. And they put it into sacks and had to determine exactly, not on a weight basis, but how many live winkles were in each sack before <laughs> you could export it to the EU. So that's the minutiae of detail around some of the paperwork that um, exporters and, and, and people in the seafood industry are kind of uh, having to deal with. And look, um, I wouldn't get too excited about fishy problems because it, it's not the... Um, the first time that this has uh, sort of been a big issue within the EU, it's it's, it's kind of a perennial one. And um, there's quite a good book actually. Um, it was written in 1972 by a, a journalist called David Spanier, Europe by Europe, and it essentially it it talks about um, the negotiations for Britain's entry into the European Common Market, and a big focus of that account is fisheries. So uh, a lot of these things that were were cause you know causing problems. In, in the 70s of, of continuing to cause problems. But at that Brexit juncture, it's a renewed focus in terms of the challenges around that industry. Um, and that, that probably is, a, is quite a nice sideline into UK and EU import controls. So really interesting about fisheries and the reason why it's relevant is it demonstrates, um, again, something really simple that gets complicated um, because of the change in relationship between the UK and the EU. Um, but one of the things that happens is things can escalate quite quickly. So where the main issue was French fisher, uh, fishermen wanting to fish in, in, uh, in shared waters and agreed upon waters, it then became an issue uh, in Paris. It became an issue in Westminster. It became an issue in Brussels um, the, with both foreign secretaries, trade ministers and, and uh, leaders escalating the tensions and you know at stating that they were going to put trade sanctions on the others and and things escalating quite quickly so fisheries yeah. was the kind of the starter of the issue but actually when you looked at some of the trade implications as it went a lot wider than that so a really seemingly straightforward issue of giving old fishermen a license to fish quickly turned into we might cut off electricity to certain parts of the UK we might we might put on tariffs for other products it escalates quite quickly because there are such the relationship is is in a really challenging place yeah and and i suppose just to add to that like stepping back and looking at the whole fisheries thing there's two issues that the one of the the main points about brexit was that the uk wanted to take back control of its waters and have sovereignty and exclude europeans from fishing and then um, 
obviously the Europeans are unhappy about that. <clears throat> They've been fishing there for a very long time, um, and so they were concerned that they were going to lose their ability to fish in British waters. Um, unfortunately for the British fishermen, their main market is the EU, so the EU then sort of said that they had put restrictions on British fish coming into the EU. Um, it really highlights the fact that both markets are really dependent on each other for a lot of things. And as Francis was saying, while there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of um, concern from the people involved that they're going to lose out on their livelihoods, this sort of ends up turning what should be a relatively small issue between two markets that are very dependent on each other into this very antagonistic relationship with, um, you know, the median sort of really, you know, there's been some pretty explosive headlines in the papers and some threats. There's been warships heading down to the um, the Channel Islands. It's, you know, it, it, it really highlights how Brexit has been going and that even the smallest issues do turn into these these big ones. Okay, so I think, um, yeah, and Alex, you had a few other points sort of around um, border controls and movement, some of those issues? Yep, so from January the 1st this year, um, we've seen um, new customs procedures, including checks on products entering the UK from the EU. Um, other conditions of entry will follow sort of later stages uh, in this year. The UK government has continually delayed implementing controls on EU ports necessary under international rules, but that's changed this year, this January. So this is going to, you know, see creating uh, uh, additional problems uh, for business adjusting to the new regime. Um, and that's, you know, both the food industry, the agri-food industry, our industry, the meat industry, no one uh, is left unaffected by these changes. Um, so by contrast, you know, the, the EU um, introduced those checks at the border and, and that, that need for paperwork uh, and, and customs protocol um, last January. Um, so there's a slight dissonance in terms of um, the, the, the trade flows being affected both ways. Um, but they're now basically aligned in terms of checks at the border. Um, the delays have meant that EU agri-food exports to the UK remain um, the same in the 1st January to August 2021, um, whereas UK exports um, fell last year by uh, 25%. In, in 2021, uh, it's interesting to note that EU imports were required to submit basic information to UK customs, and the importer could defer customs declaration for six months under certain conditions, and yep. you could stick it on the other. So in 2021, EU imports were required to submit basic information to UK customs uh, and the importer could defer the customs declaration for six months under certain conditions. However, what we're seeing from this January is declarations will need to be made um, prior to the, the goods moving between the border. Um, and from the 1st of July, UK health certs, so anything that comes from a plant or an animal, um, needs to have a, a veterinary certification that, that travels along with that consignment. Um, New Zealand, when we send our beef and lamb, we, we send that along with, with health certs. Um, so that's that's something that we haven't had before as a requirement within the single market, but for third countries moving, which the UK is now, uh, into the, the, the common uh, the market, 
that's something that, that needs to do uh, be done um, as well as physical checks. So when we, when we talk about physical checks, that means opening up lorries, opening up containers and making sure the paperwork that we're looking at um, corresponds with what's actually in that container. And that can get quite technical. So basically what all this means is where we had a border that was free flowing before. So um, HGVs, uh, containers, uh, you know, port, port, points of entry being ports, uh, the channel tunnel. Um, we're just, we, we're seeing, a, I suppose, a, a bit of a slowing up of that process. So what that means is things get uh, slowed up. It's not, it's not a fluid process. Um, and that adds additional costs for business, because if you look at the agri-food sector, especially, it's a just-in-time uh, economy. So that consignment needs to be with that customer uh, in, a, in a time critical sort of frame. And if you create backlogs and bottlenecks, um, that makes that very difficult to happen. And when you're introducing the paperwork around it, um, you need to make sure all your paperwork is ready to go. Because if, if, if there are any customs problems or if there are any problems with health certs, then that has a knock on effect. That means that that consignment may not reach its intended market or purpose in that just-in-time context. Um, so that puts immense pressure on businesses to make the investment in their systems to, to, to be able to do that. Um, and if, if you, it's not just the, 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 the UK and EU trade that's affected. When, when products and uh, consignments come from around the world into that, that environment um, where that backlog is, is being created, it can then have a knock-on effect in terms of um, for example, our beacon land being cleared um, quickly um, at that point of entry. So it has a, a knock-on effect um, as well. And then the, the, the manning and the, the staff available at those points of entry. Um, you know, I, I, talking to people in the industry, um, there's just not enough um, staff sometimes to process this stuff properly. And, and that can create backlogs. So essentially it does put um, a lot of pressure on, on the whole system. Is it, in a way, fair to, uh, it sounds a bit like UK agriculture, the exporters are suddenly, uh, is this some of the stuff New Zealand exporters have already been jumping through hoops, the fact we've, we've had to deal with a lot of this documentation to send stuff around, or is this um, above and beyond what even our exporters have been having to deal with? Um, it's it's pretty much in line now. Yeah. Um, we, we've, we've kind of always had um, yeah. health certs for the last you know, so many decades. It, it's nothing really new for us. It's just that the the capacity of the uh, the receiving country to deal with it. Um, but it's all, yeah, especially, also... especially into the UK, because the EU's got more points of entry in terms of servicing that customer. So it's, it's not quite like for like. All right, look, we've been talking, and you know, the analogy used before is basically moving sausages from A to B, and ultimately it's about the economy, what people buy, what people sell, but the, the way the world is now, so much of what we buy and sell comes from other countries. So, um, Nick, come to you now. You've been waiting patiently, and we did hear from you a wee bit earlier, but what's the economic toll been? Ultimately, the, the, these practical difficulties are all very well, but what does it mean in terms of money? It's It's been quite difficult to tell because Brexit happened, and then a month later all of the or roughly a month later all of the restrictions around covid started coming in so we started seeing all of the chaos associated 
with COVID, that means it's been really hard to separate out the effects of Brexit on the effects of COVID. So Alex talked a little bit before about um, troubles at the border between the UK and France or the, the UK and Europe. Well, part of that has been due to restrictions um, as a result of COVID and part of it has been as a result of um, increased paperwork um, resulting from Brexit. So separating the two out has been really difficult. Um, the other thing that probably made things a little bit more difficult was as Francis alluded to, the, the deal between the EU and the UK was struck at the 11th hour. So it was done, I think, on Christmas Eve and then came into effect on uh, the 31st of December. So there wasn't that much time for UK businesses or European businesses to understand what these rules meant and train their staff up to implement them. Um, and then one of the other concerns from, from the UK is a, a country that is relatively reliant on, on imports, for example, um, the UK is 75% sufficient in beef, meaning 25% of it has to, to come in, and most of it that is from the EU, is that in order to keep food on shelves in supermarkets, and you know, in New Zealand we saw people do a rush on, on toilet paper as a result of COVID, um, other places it was food products, um, they have tried to keep those supply chains relatively free. So we haven't seen all of the the um, the new requirements from Brexit for food going into the UK from the EU come in yet. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of exports, and I'll talk more about the, the agriculture and red meat sector rather than the economy as a whole. Like, like Francis said, the UK is very reliant on the EU, particularly for sheep meat. So over 90% of British sheep meat goes to the EU, meaning that you know any any change in trade was going to cause significant impacts. That's sort of similar to um, you know what happened to New Zealand when the the UK joined the EU and suddenly we had um, restrictions on our, our exports. Um, yeah, and, and like Alex was saying, you know, there's a lot of regulation around food products, particularly around the food safety. Um, as, you know, as, as you guys were saying, the, the UK was part of the EU sending um, a sausage from, from London to Paris was as easy as sending it from Wellington to Christchurch. Um, with all of these new restrictions, suddenly the UK is treated like a third country, so the same as New Zealand, and has to provide all of the the, the same documentation that goes along with our exports to the EU. And you're talking about, um, and I guess these things sort of have an indirect cost, but the amount of, <clears throat> we've heard about the amount of effort that's the planning to get the agreement and what the implications that have been within the, the UK and the EU themselves, but Give us a background. There's been a lot of contingency planning happening within New Zealand for the government, um, beef and lamb, New Zealand itself, the meat board, MIA, the Meat Industry Association, that sort of thing. What's been going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started at beef and lamb two years ago, so I didn't catch the start of it, but I definitely caught the end of it as we we're working through it. But there was a lot of planning done between, um, yeah, from the from the meat sector, from the meat board, 
the Meat Industry Association, which obviously represents the, the processors in beef and lamb, us representing the farmers. And we're working with the New Zealand government to understand what the impacts of Brexit would be and put in plans, put in place plans to mm -hmm. mitigate them. So that was, you know, looking at the wider market effects, one of the one of our major concerns was that the UK would leave the EU without a deal, which would mean that there would basically be no British exports of lamb or red meat to the EU, which mm -hmm. would mean it would all stay in the UK. Obviously, that would cause, um, you know, a whole lot of market chaos. Um, demand would probably drop for New Zealand red meat exports. Um, and so, you know, we're really keeping an eye on that. We're talking to our exporters, we're talking to our companies, and we're making sure that they realise that, you know, potentially this could go really badly. That's yep. that's probably worst case scenario. And then the other other stuff that, you know, seems seems very small and detailed and um potentially a bit pointless, but just making sure that the new certificates for export had the UK on them rather than the EU. So our product could actually um continue entering the UK without any um you know, any delays. Yeah. And the other, um, ironically, New Zealand was forced into the sort of diversification of the exports markets because of the UK's decision 60 odd years ago to, to join the, the EEC. Um, this hasn't just had an impact on New Zealand's exports to the UK and EU. I mean, there's been things like um, access, uh, trade with China and things like that. What's been the impacts on some of our other, or, or our relationship with some of our other major trading partners? Yeah, well, and and like you say, when the when the UK joined the EEC or the EU as it is now, that did cause uh, a lot of chaos for us because we didn't have a lot of other markets that we could shift product to. So we, you know, we were we we're extremely exposed. While Brexit caused quite a lot of headaches for us this time, our trade has become a lot more sophisticated in the last, you know, fifty years, and. You know, we have our other markets, um, you know, for lamb, it's um, China's obviously a big one, the United States, Middle East, and that meant that we could shift exports around and there were other markets. So that's been a core plank of our, our trade policy really is to ensure that exporters have the opportunity to chase the returns, the best returns in different markets and, and there is a lot more flexibility. In the, in the last year or so, China has, or demand has really rocketed up in China for red meat. And that's sort of due to a few things is, um, you know, really high demand because of African swine fever in China is, has, um, you know, impacted their pork production quite a lot, meaning there's a shortage of protein resulting in increased demand. And then there's also supply side things from our other trading um you know, competitors as you will. So Australia is currently rebuilding their herd after uh, droughts. Brazil's had export restrictions because of um, mad cow disease. Um, and all of those things have come together to mean that prices are really high for red meat products around the world. And and going back to the UK and how UK farmers have been coping, yes, there's been a lot of, um, you know, chaos and, um, and things that have 
you know, potentially negatively impacted their trade and negatively impacted prices. But in terms of, you know, prices for animals in the UK, they're still kept relatively high. And that's mm-hmm. that's probably because China is really holding up world price at the moment for red meat. So uh, hopefully, and we sort of expect that to continue over the next few years, but that is definitely muting some of the impacts of Brexit for both New Zealand farmers and British farmers. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Look, um, we're, we're covering a lot of material, but we still really want to get to one of the key points, and I'm not sure how long this is going to take. We'll come back to you now, Francis, I think, to talk about um, this has been happening over there, but ultimately New Zealand wants to export, so we've suddenly got to rearrange some of our, our terms, our free trade agreements, if you like, particularly with the UK, but also um, with the EU. So what's been the impact? What's been the outcome? Where are we at with our free trade agreement, particularly with the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned uh, at the very, very uh, start that they have a kind of a long list and in, in ter- to-do list for Brexit. And one of those things was to kind of re-establish themselves uh, as a kind of a global trading leader. Um, and so part of that was, you know, actually saying, well, what is our independent trade strategy going to be similar to what we did in the 70s and the 80s Um, and what does that look like and they said okay well we know that the UK's biggest trading partner is the US and the EU has never been able to get a a trade agreement with the US because it's been put in the too hard basket so we definitely want to do that and we actually need to go back to some of those trading relationships that we had back you know before, before we joined the EU and look to our friends who have similar values to us and, and have been able to to take on the challenge that we're taking on now. So that's where they said, look, we go, we're going to look to get a, a free trade agreement with both Australia and New Zealand. Now, unfortunately, for, for a number of reasons, mainly um, Biden coming in, uh, President Biden being elected in the US, the US conversation stalled. Some of the biggest issues that were part of those conversations were around standards the use of different pesticides, the use of different uh, medicines for animals and, and how um, how the U.S. produces their animals and produces their food. So the, the classic issue in, in the U.K. was talking about the use of chlorine to clean chicken because their standards of production when it comes to chicken were at a lower level than the U.K. Um, but so, so the U.S. stalled. That, that, that hasn't been able to go anywhere. But the really great thing is we've seen significant process in a very short time um, on a free trade agreement between the UK and Australia and the UK and New Zealand. So this culminated in uh, just a couple of months ago in October, we signed something called a free trade agreement in principle, which was basically say kind of this is the first draft of a free trade agreement. Here are the broad brush things that are going to happen. Uh, one of the big things is to say, Uh, here's what market access looks like for both of us. Um, But also to kind of say, look, this is a new style of trade agreement. Um, We're going to go above and beyond what we've done before. So they included, we've included an animal welfare chapter, which basically state not only do we have reciprocal um, and equivalents of standards, but also that we believe um, animal welfare is so important that other countries and our competitor countries need to be living up to those standards as well. Uh-huh. So what can we do to work together on an international plane to make sure that the likes of the US and, and Brazil and 
and uh, you know a range of different countries are, are doing all the work that we've been doing um, to make sure that you know we're at a we're at a comparative advantage. Um, and there was also the environmental chapter, which not only said, look, we're affirming our UN com uh, commitments to reduce um, our CO2 levels um, and address climate change, but also how do we work together on other environmental issues, whether it's water or biodiversity or a range of different stuff. How do we kind of share what we know, what we're doing, what's working well, what's not working well, so that again, when we when we have uh, New Zealand and the same in the UK is there's you know a lot of environmental regulations and you know we're having conversations about here Kanoa. so that's those conversations are relevant and actually we think it's the right thing to do because it is the right thing to do but uh -huh. other competitors should be doing the same thing so you know the the UK's independent uh, trade strategy has been you know, focused on opening up new markets and being able to kind of, you know, look to export beyond the EU. Um, but it's also said we're opening up our markets and we're trading with countries that have a similar standard to that we have. Uh, we don't want kind of low quality, um, cheap imports coming in. And so, you know, getting those free trade agreements with the likes of Australia and New Zealand is perfect because, you know, we we really live up to the standards in terms of what we're providing the customers. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really good news story, and I, I think in terms of market access, we're kind of going back to those pre nineteen seventy two levels. Uh, so yeah. sometimes people talk about new market access. I kind of uh, I like to think of it as you know our traditional market access. You know, going back to our roots um, and actually making sure that those relationships are, are rekindled um, and those trade flows are rekindled. And, and it's all in principle, but you know, from a New Zealand ag point of view, uh, that that, that um, agreement or possible agreement with the UK is, from sheep and beef farmers' point of view, a good one in terms of access quota, those sorts of things. Oh, look, it, it's a really, really good one. I mean, if you yep. you were to kind of tell me that we were going to get a deal that we got, uh, a, you know, a couple of months before it was signed, that I'd be very, very shocked. <laughs> um, so we've got a, a pretty uh, transition period of 15 years and then we've got full tariff elimination. Um, the 15 years is quite a helpful thing because it enables our exporters to establish the relationship with UK importers, but it also provides us uh, with a basis in which we can work with UK farmers so that they're in a best position to kind of have that, have that, yeah. uh, those imports coming in. And look, we talk about these kind of quotas as Nick so rightly said, you know, looking at the market forces around, while UK prices that they're willing to pay are high, they're nowhere near as high as what we're finding in China. So, um, so it's kind of more about the opportunity rather than kind of the practice, as it were. So that that transition period is quite nice for us. Um, it, the other kind of amazing thing is, you know, when we do get an uh, entry into force, which hopefully is going to be uh, January 2023, um, is you know, we get all those co-products that we talk about, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, offal or whether it's seasoned products or prepared food or whether it's pet food, you know, they will be coming in at uh, zero tariff rates, which is, which is incredible. And again, demonstrates that, you know, as a sector, we're pivoting from quantity to quality. So just getting the best bang for our buck when it comes to, to the carcass.
So just a, can I just yeah, jump Nick, in there, Francis, and, and and expand a wee bit on the UK market. So as um, you know, you guys all know the UK has been a massive market for sheep meat, um, and that's due to us having a significant quota under the under the WTO, which came in in, in 1995. Um, and before that, there was there was other quota access as well. But the UK has always been a sheep meat market because we've had this large quota. Unfortunately, beef, we've had a very small quota. So it was 1300 tonnes shared between the, the, um, the all of the EU, so the EU 28, which included the UK, um, that has subsequently been split. But this new, free trade agreement gives us 12,000 tonnes of beef from year one. And looking at the really high tariffs that the UK has on beef, um, and remembering that they are reliant on beef imports for 25% of their consumption, um, that, that access is worth $44 million a year to New Zealand farmers in the first year alone. And that rises up to, um, you know, full and open access from year 15. This that that is going to be huge for New Zealand farmers because it gives us access to a market of consumers that care about animal welfare and they care about um, sustainability and they're willing to pay extra for that. So these are the markets that we really want to be targeting. And as Francis said before, you know those those processed meat products. So let's say um, you know, it was a lamb shank that had a bit of seasoning on it beforehand. That would have um, that would have had a 16% tariff on it, and now it will have a zero. So that means that those, say, lower value cuts can now be um, further processed in New Zealand, and we can gain extra value from them. So that's another thing that's that's really good. Um, the other the other thing that we've been talking with our UK counterparts about is the, the the animal welfare and the environmental side of things. And New Zealand's really been a leader in these areas. Um, and, and some of the issues that we're going through now, particularly around um, uh, forestry, our sheep and beef farms, carbon farming, the UK is starting to look at that, but they're, they're, um, you know, they're just starting to get into it. We want to work together and focus on shared challenges to the sheep and beef sector. So rather than the Brits seeing us as competitors, we're yeah. hoping we, you know, we're we're really looking to strengthen those relationships and focus on things that are impacting sheep and beef farmers worldwide. You know, um, the more people that eat sheep and beef, um, the better. And you know, these these challenges you know, they're not just New Zealand's challenges, the, the more voices that we can have gives more strength to our argument. So looking to the future, this is something that, you know, we'll be working really hard on. That's, that's um, you know, one of Alex's main roles over there is working with the National Farmers Union, the NFU and um, other British farming organisations. So I don't know whether you want to comment on that. How has it been received? We saw some shots fired at us sort of late last year, you know, from farmer organisations or representatives. And you can, how's it going down, Alex? Because it sounds like we're pretty happy with the deal we got or we may get. But um, what's the on the ground feeling? Yeah, look, um, there's, there's certainly some nervousness. And 
that that nervousness is is focused in in, in sectors which are referred to as sensitive and 100 percent beef and lamb farmers in the uk have got some some pretty pretty big headwinds you know that's that's from everything from a reduction in subsidy to um you know increasing compliance from an environmental uh, point of view so uh, and asking questions do i enroll in the environmental schemes that are coming available and how do i manage my farm going forward and that that kind of has a knock-on effect in terms of that their representative organizations their levy bodies um so look it, it does make for a tough conversation mm. um when you start talking about markets you know we've talked about the excellent prices that we're seeing globally in red meat and, and, and that the, the uk is seeing those fantastic prices as well so that's taken some wind out of it but you know, as Nick's pointed out, having the conversations about carbon farming, about how we manage uh, methane and nitrous oxide on farm, and and you know, when we when we look at, I suppose, climate change response, um, we both share the view that, you know, to use a couple of phrases, uh, a just rural transition. So both the UK is looking for that just rural transition. And if we focus the conversation on that, you know, globally, we can achieve a lot for, for beef and lamb farming. And, you know, on the carbon farming side, it's it's it's, it's a shared, um, you know, view around um, having the right tree in the right place. So, you know, it, it, it's not it's not a difficult conversation in that respect. Um, they're nervous, but I, I think equally. They're saying, well, what what does cptpp look for us what does increased access into other markets you know we're a counter seasonal producer especially in pastoral systems so um what does that mean from a global meat marketing perspective um and i think you know one view that, that I, i've come across is well actually if we're going to have other protein in some of our markets we want it to be of similar credentials in terms of welfare and environmental, because we don't want it to become the market of the lowest common denominator. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, 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 if, if we, we have the conversations framed in that way, um, the, there's some positivity uh, as well as, you know, offensive interests. There's one, one more thing there that we are, just to mention that we are working with British farmers on, and it is something that, um, did come out of the UK and it's working um, on climate change and climate change metrics. GWP star is something that farmers across the world, um, you know, would like their governments to understand and use when implementing climate policy and climate targets. This is, you know, it came out of um, Oxford University. So, you know, thanks to the Brits there for, for, um, for working on that one. It, and, you know, this is something, like mm. I was saying before, that we will continue working with the NFU on um, and a stronger voice from all farmers around the world is the way that, you know, we're going to sort of change mindsets and, and change government policy with that. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Hey, look, I think um, we've, we've covered a lot and I think we've nearly ticked everything off, but I have just got one sort of last question um, for you, Francis. That we mentioned there, there were some shots fired because it was a sign probably that New Zealand have got a good agreement that um, some shots fired about the quality of our production. But you mentioned, I mean, that, that some of these things around animal welfare and environment are 
are central to this agreement and it's um i mean at the at the the level of the negotiations government level etc this general agreement that we're all on the same page we're roughly at the same level and there's the opportunity in these agreements to sort of for both countries to improve everything further in terms of the quality of their production systems is that sort of what you were talking about there um yeah animal welfare is a really good uh kind of area where we can work together. We both accept um, the sentience of, of beef and sheep. We both uh, prioritise it and make sure that that is, uh, that is critical to our production and our, and our systems and our practices. But that's not happening around the world. So, you know, we really want to make sure that everyone are, uh, is brought up to the same level that we are, not only because we think it's right, but again, it comes back to what I was talking before, making sure that we're not at a competitive disadvantage. Uh -huh. So the idea that this agreement provides us a platform to work with the Brits who, again, have similar standards to ourselves, um, to work on an international stage to say this is, this is critical for how we work and how we practice is really helpful. So... Uh, the WTO doesn't have anything on animal welfare. So it's a really interesting uh, new groundbreaking world of, of trade and law and similar with environmental standards where we need some we need some buddies to kind of help us push this along because it really does matter and it is the right thing to do. Nice. All right, look, um, Francis, you're not far away from having to get on a plane. And Alex, I don't think it's too late at night over there, but we certainly have kept you on for a wee while after work hours. So, look, I don't know, the two of you, Nick's already had to go. Is there anything else um, you want to cover or add to what we've talked about before we wrap up? Um, I might just add, look, um, it's a really interesting time. And I think hmm. the coming months, you're going to see a, a, a lot of things moving quite quickly. Um, in terms of free trade agreements and, and Brexit and how that sort of starts to pan out. Um, so, yeah, look, watch this space. Yeah, awesome. And my last question is just, um, we've got an agreement in principle. What's the time frame for having an agreement in, in fact, signed and yes. done and dusted? Oh, you're grinning, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so we're, in terms of our, uh, our workers, we're kind of, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure the legalities are, are all there. Um, there are other parts of the agreement that are far more challenging. Um, I, I won't dive too much into that rabbit hole, but the, <laughs> another ground part, groundbreaking part of the agreement is we uh, will be the first to include something called an Indigenous chapter, mm -hmm. um, which reflects not only the importance of, of, of the Treaty of Waitangi, but also acknowledges the relationship between the British government and and um, and Maoridom, um, and that is no easy feat. So that mm. so that those negotiations are ongoing. Um, there's also work that needs to be done around um, digital trade uh, and what that looks like, and, and a lot of those problems. Uh, we're trying to future-proof this sort of a free trade agreement, so it doesn't necessarily impact us too much um, because our stuff is is on the right track. But that that's kind of where it gets into that political sphere. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, but right. sorry, just to, I didn't even answer your question. We're looking, hopefully, fingers, fingers crossed, hopefully in, in a couple of months. So so awesome. March is, uh, is, but now that I've said that, it, it won't happen. Maybe <laughs> April. <laughs> I, know. I see a, I see a whole other podcast coming up on uh, once we get there and we've got the details and what it all means. So, 
But look, I think I will, we will wrap it up there. You've got a plane to catch here. We've been a, a long podcast, but there's been a lot to cover and a lot of detail we wanted to cover. So look, um, Nick's gone, but thank you very much to Nicholas Jolly, Senior Advisor, Trade and Environment, um, to Alex Gowan, Regional Manager, UK and Europe, and to Fa uh, Francis Deigen, Deignan, sorry, Francis, um, Senior Senior Manager, International Trade, all from Beef and Lamb New Zealand. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.